Welcome, everybody. Welcome. How are you? Yet another edition of Don't Crack Up a Commuter's Podcast. I am your host, Patrick, Patrick Markey. Hope that you're well. Yet another installment to all five of my listeners. Hello again. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your attention, your precious, precious attention. Uh, I know there are so many things that uh, you could be doing right now. And you're doing this, so thank you. It's called a commuter's podcast, but, you know, that's just because I'm a commuter. And you could listen to it while you commute, or while you walk on a treadmill, or vacuum, or whatever the heck you do. You could be listening to this, and hopefully you are, and that's why you're able to hear these words. Huh, funny how that works. Anyway, you know there's a lot to discuss this installment, and I want to get right to it. I'm going to talk to you about things I've been listening to things I've been watching, and yet another installment of the Party Down discussion, the Stars Network program that aired in 2009 and 2010. We have come to a interesting milestone in that this show's discussion is about Roman De Beers, played by the great Martin Starr. And the milestone is, this is the fifth of five cast members that appeared in all 20 episodes and the prior four shows discussed the other four main cast members of course remember the first show was just a discussion of all the cast members and themes of the show in general an overview well this time we're talking about roman and this completes yes this completes deep dives of the five primary cast members of party down so great milestone we're we're hitting and achieving this week, or this month, this show. Excited to talk about him. Although, it's a very different discussion. Because whereas in previous installments where we were talking about uh, strengths of a character, if you've seen the show, you know that Roman is a jerk. So, we'll talk about it. We'll, 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 we're not just going to leave it there. We're going to go deeper. Anyway, let's get to it. Let's get right to it. And let's talk about some things I've been listening to. First of all, I want to talk to you about an audiobook. Yes, in this commuter lifestyle, audiobooks uh, are a good way to pass the time, or so I've found. In this installment, I want to talk to you about the Poetic Edda, stories of the Norse gods and heroes, translated and edited by Jackson Crawford, narrated by Jackson Crawford. And Jackson Crawford is an old Norse expert. That's how he describes himself. I actually first learned about this gentleman by uh, a YouTube video. You know, the old uh, algorithm, for whatever reason, suggested one of his videos. I watched it. I was intrigued uh, and found on Audible that not only had he written a translation of the Poetic Edda, a text of Norse myths, but he had, in fact, uh, narrated it. And so, got it. And it's really excellent. I've listened to it more than once. That's how good it is. Um, JacksonWCrawford.com. That's apparently his website. So there you go. And again, this is Audible audiobook that I've been listening to. Now, it's not to say it's not available in other places, the audiobook. I don't know that. I just know it is on Audible, and that's where I heard it. 
that's where I got it. So if you are someone who is interested in mythology, highly recommended. Or if you're someone who just likes stories, highly recommended. This is um, well done. It's his personal translation, obviously. He's got a great voice. It's a great narration. I mean, you really, me, me, you as in me, <laughs> whatever that means, uh, really kind of zone out and get lost in the narration because it's very gripping, very uh, engaging. Having said that, please pay attention while driving. Okay, anyway, it's an excellent narration. And what the book does is um, it gives the stories, the translation of the stories, but there, there's an intro to all of them. And the very beginning of uh, the, the book, the introduction, giving historical context to the myths and kind of, um, I don't know, talking about our understanding maybe from popular culture versus uh, what is presented in the Norse texts themselves. So really well done. And it's, it's an interesting mythology. You know, it's a set of myths where the gods know the world will end from the very beginning. And so it's this series of attempts to prolong the world and protect humanity. And of course, uh, there are many, many, you know, morality tales and really reveals the character and uh, the beliefs, obviously, of, of the culture, of that culture. And so also... He's very impressive with the translations. You know, we're used to the Marvel, Odin and Thor. And I think he, you know, Odin is what he says. And maybe even poor is what he says. So listen and learn from him, not from me. There's a real highlight here in particular. It's chapter 11 of the audio file. It's uh, Havamal, which is basically like the, the words of, of Odin. And it's sort of just this teaching, you know, way, the way to live. And it gives an interesting insight to that that culture and, and a different way you know how they thought the things they believed in and attitudes cultural attitudes so very very interesting stuff also interesting the way that they these myths were shared the you know creation and destruction it all comes out in dialogue when other things are happening to care you know Odin is talking to someone and in the middle of that dialogue Ragnarok is, you know, explained and, you know, the end of the world is explained and creation is explained. So it comes out in these other scenarios. And that's something that uh, Jackson Crawford talks about. So learn it from him, not from me. But let me just tell you, if you like mythology, if that's something that interests you, this is highly recommended. Well, even if you don't, if you just are someone who, who likes stories, highly recommended. If you like someone, a very good storyteller, highly recommended. Uh, an example of this being quality work. I played this, uh, I played Havamal, that chapter for someone who really didn't know much about Norse myths other than, you know, what Marvel says. And uh, they just, they were engaged. They, they were, they stopped what they were doing and listened. So that speaks to the power of the, of the translation of the narration and ultimately of the story. So there it is, the poetic Edda stories of the Norse gods and heroes translated and edited by Jackson Crawford. Narrated by Jackson Crawford. Check it out. I got it on Audible. Maybe you can find it somewhere else. But there's also, of course, an actual paper text of this, which I think is available on Amazon and, you know, your traditional uh, booksellers. So there you go. And again, this is not pitching for Amazon. I'm just talking about if you want to hear this stuff, what's the easiest way? Don't say it's the right way. What's the easiest way? So there you go. Jackson Crawford. And if you really are interested in him, again, 
go to YouTube right now. He's got all kinds of videos and uh, he show, he's, uh, seems to be an interesting person. There you go. All right, the Poetic Edit. So that is something I was listening to an audiobook, but I want to talk now a little bit about some music I've been listening to. I have had on repeat a song called Diet Pill by the band L7. This particular track was written by Donita Sparks. It's from the 1992 album, Bricks Are Heavy. One of my very favorite albums, something that I got back then, back in 1992, or maybe I got it in early 93, cassette tape. And guess what? Listen to this. That right there, if you can hear it, that is L7 Bricks Are Heavy on cassette, which I still have. Now, full disclosure, I was not listening to the track Diet Pill on the cassette. Uh, I was listening on an MP3. So, of course, it's available in all the formats. And you can pick up the song. You can pick up the album on all the major sellers, right? iTunes, Amazon, all that. If you haven't heard it, great, great album. Highly recommended. If you're of my age, you might remember the song, Pretend You're Dead, from the same album, Breaks Are Heavy. It was actually kind of a radio hit. It had, an out, it had a music video that was at least somewhat popular back then. But don't sell yourself shorts and just settle for that. Get the album. I want to talk particularly about the song Diet Pill. And what I love about this song is it's almost a short story. The way it's uh, presented kind of starts off slow, but it's heavy. And it's written in such a way that you are given a clue as to what is happening. It's not, you know, everything's not said explicitly, but you get this idea of someone who is coming down from being strung out on diet pills or speed and they are piecing together or we're piecing together what has happened something terrible has happened and really it's sort of this domestic nightmare that we're presented now if you have the actual album in a physical form whether the cassette tape the cd there's a drawing inside the sleeve uh, that has a picture of a, a woman with a frying pan and there's someone in a bed and so the implication of course is that someone's been killed but because of sort of the, the brilliant way it's written, you can draw different conclusions. And ultimately, I have not read any interview or any source giving any kind of definitive explanation. And so I'm just telling you based on what I hear. So it's this sort of domestic nightmare. We're given the domestic imagery, you know, Calgon and uh, children and frying pans and all these kinds of things. Uh, but this person is coming down, apparently. And I think it's an open question. Is this someone who is escaping from, you know, a, a, an abusive relationship? Is this someone who has just entered into a, a, a drug psychosis? If you remember the film uh, Requiem for a Dream, the mother sort of, you know, conjures up that, you know, that kind of imagery. Although that movie came after this song and this album. But ultimately you draw your conclusions. And so that's what I really enjoy about it. It, it, it it's, it's like I say, I, I, to me, it's a short story, almost a short horror story. You could make uh, a movie out of this, or you could make um, I don't know, a half hour TV show or something like that. You, you could, you could make something visual to go along with this, what's created. So it's so well done. Uh, the world is created. It's a mood and I love all the parts of it. And it, to me, it invites being put on repeat because each time you sort of pick up different things that are happening, 
you know, musically as well as lyrically. And again, what do you think? What story is presented to you? Well, I mean, you could tell me if you want uh, at a commuters pod on Twitter, uh, do not crack up podcast at gmail.com. Don't crack up podcast at gmail.com. I feel like I have to say that because isn't that the thing that people do that host these kind of things? They make those pitches. So there you go. But ultimately, get the song, listen to the song, and draw your own conclusions. I also want to give a special uh, nod to the track um, One More Thing, which is on that same album. Uh, and that song is written by Jennifer Finch. And One More Thing is a song about someone who uh, is on the point of breaking. This podcast is Don't Crack Up. One More Thing is a song about someone who is on the verge of cracking up. And so I want to encourage them not to. But anyway, there you go. I've been listening to L7, Diet Pill in particular. Great, great track. But the whole album, Bricks Are Heavy, one of my all-time favorites. All right, let's move on. Okay, what have I been watching? Well... I'm going to start this segment with this running little idea. You know, this is the sixth installment of the podcast. And as a tease to get you to listen to the other ones, if you haven't already, uh, I, I had this whole segment in the first one about the Lizzie Kaplan shared universe, L-C-S-U. And with each subsequent show, I have added to that, or I've added another entry to the Lizzie Kaplan Shared Universe. For more information, listen to the prior episodes. And if you want to do a shortcut, just go to the watching segments on all of them and you'll hear the original and then you'll hear the new entries. You know, the what am I watching? I've got time codes, all that kind of stuff. Yay, whatever. So, short version of it. It's this idea, this, this running thought that all of the works of Lizzie Kaplan are related in some way, either by a plot point that is similar to a plot point in the movie Save the Date from 2012, or that there is an actor that is in Save the Date as well as another one of her works, or that there is a shared plot point or a shared actor in another work which relates to another work which relates to Save the Date. Yay, there it is. So here, here's the thing, folks. As many times as I've done this now, this is the sixth time. I think we have now reached the quintessential entry. It's the entry that makes you, to the true believers, you realize, yes, this is a real thing. Why? Because of what I'm about to tell you. So buckle up, prepare yourself. I watched a movie called Crossing Over from the year 2008. So it, it predates Save the Date. This is a film where Lizzie Kaplan plays a character named Marla. I think she has like three scenes, okay? Harrison Ford, Ray Liotta, Ashley Judd. It's a movie about uh, immigration. It takes place in Los Angeles. It's sort of, if you remember, Traffic or Crash, you know, those being movies about drug trafficking and, and racism. Now, Crash, I'm not talking about the James Spader movie. I'm talking about the... Uh, what is Don Cheadle, Sandra Bullock, not the James Spader one. And so similar to those movies, you have a series of, you have these different characters and these different stories that all kind of intertwine and all touch on the same topic, which is immigration. 
And so she plays a, a school teacher. And again, I think maybe three scenes, you do see her right away, maybe something in the middle and then at the end. And so a movie in which she has like three scenes and yet it's got one of the ultimate examples of the shared universe. What do I mean? Well, get ready for this. If you remember, if you've seen Save the Date, or if you've heard me talk about Save the Date, you know, there's this thing where in the beginning she's with this one gentleman, she's in a relationship with him, he's in a band. Oh, by the way, he's in a band with a character played by Martin Starr, who's also in Party Down, along with Lizzie Kaplan. And this gentleman that she's in a relationship with, he's in a band, Wolfbird, and he plays the keyboard and he sings. And we see him early in the movie Save the Date. He's at a show. He's playing the keyboard and he's singing. Well, guess what? In this movie, Crossing Over, she ends up, you know, having a love interest who also plays the keyboard and sings at a concert in the movie Crossing Over. Now, there are differences. It's not explicit that this is her love interest, but by the end of the film, it's heavily, heavily, heavily implied. Regardless, you have somebody playing the keyboard and singing, a main character playing the keyboard and singing at a concert in both movies, which is just, you know, it is what it is, right? A bizarre coincidence, whatever you want to say, but it's still there. Further connections would be that uh, Josh Gad is in the movie Crossing Over. He, of course, uh, had a part in season one, episode two of Party Down. And so Martin Starr, who was in Save the Date and was also in Party Down. So there's another connection. Here's another weird one. Uh, I ended up buying a used copy of this because to digitally rent Crossing Over was the same as a used DVD copy. And I was in the store, half-price half books, and I said, well, I'll just go ahead and get it. So I have in front of me a copy of the DVD of Crossing Over, which has a quote on the front. Who is that quote by? It's by Ben Mankiewicz. Well, what's the significance there? Ben Mankiewicz plays a sports anchor, a sports caster in season two, episode nine of Party Down, Cole Landry's draft day party. And he interviews Lizzie Kaplan's character, Casey, who's pretending to be Cole Landry's girlfriend. So there you go. And again, there's always the save the date party down connection because Martin Starr stars in both of them. There you go. Bizarre keyboard singing at a show, love interest connection, the party down, Josh Gad connection. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? All right, enough. America's greatest living actor, Lizzie Kaplan, yet another entry. Will there be more? Yeah, there will, because I just went on IMDb and found a couple more things I haven't seen. So there you go. Stay tuned. Anyway, let's move on. I'm going to give you a couple quick hitters. Things I've watched. Quick reviews. I did watch The White Lotus, or White Lotus it's called. HBO. There's been much talk about it. It was just out. I'm not going to spoil anything, but I will tell you that I did enjoy it. When I first started watching it, I thought, well, this is sort of party down like, right? Because party down... Oh, it's a party. It should be a good time. But in fact, people are having a bad time or they're miserable. White Lotus, picturesque 
Hawaiian vacation. Everyone should be having a good time, and they're not. That's true. That similarity is there. But White Lotus goes in a different direction, and it has to do with, you know, entitlement, classism, privilege. And, you know, it also raises the point, wherever you go, there you are. And the people that you live with, your family, what have you, you're going to find out if you like them when you're isolated, on vacation, far out, you know, alone. And so that it, it raises all these interesting points. It also just has a meditative aspect to it. It just has a lot of great visuals. And it does that thing which Better Call Saul kind of does, right? Which is a lot of scenes where very little dialogue and you're just observing the character doing all these different things. There's a lot of that in White Lotus. So I thought it was very good. There you go. White Lotus. I watched a movie called The Djinn, which is a horror uh, movie, you know, a 90-minute horror movie. It takes place, I won't spoil it, it takes place in an apartment. And so, you know, not a huge budget. It's very well done. And it sticks with you. If you watch it to the end and you see what happens, I'm just going to tell you, it sticks with you. So that was very good. I did watch the movie Malignant, which I won't spoil that either. Uh, it was bizarre. It was bizarre. That's all I'll say. That's it. It was bizarre. I'm going to leave it right there. Are there other things I can think about? Yeah, you know what? I saw the show Search Party. Shout out to Michael Showalter, who I believe is one of the writers from the state. We've talked so much about the state in these various episodes. Uh, way to go. It's a really excellent show. It's got four seasons. You can watch them on HBO Max. And by the way, Malignant um, was HBO Max. The Gin I rented on Amazon. And White Lotus is HBO. Just so you know. That's how you can see all these things. Search Party is a truly excellent show. It's hard to talk about without spoiling it. If I were to say to you what genre is it, it's every genre. Each, you know, very, very funny. So some of the funniest things I've seen, you know, some of the hardest laughs I've had watching a show, but then immediately it take, it turns a corner and goes to a very dark place. It touches on every genre. And so hard to talk about it without spoiling it, so I won't. But if you just give it a chance... Try to clear your mind of expecting it to fit into a box. It's this show. It's this type of show. It's that type of show. Watch it with an open mind. It's it's a really an incredible ride. Great acting. Great writing. Very well done. A show called Search Party. I saw it on HBO Max. There you go. All right. So now I want to talk a little bit more in depth as I've done. You know, I've talked about some about these other things, but a little more, bit more in depth about a movie called Margin Call from the year 2011. Um, available to rent on all the digital stuff, Amazon, iTunes. You could get a DVD copy, I believe. I was able to rent it digitally, widely available. It's from the year 2011. It's written and directed by J.C. Chandor. And it's really, it's got quite an impressive cast and ensemble. Zachary Quinto as Peter Sullivan. He's sort of the, I would say he's the main focus. If we had a, you know, protagonist, it would be him or Kevin Spacey as Sam Rogers. Those are, I guess, the two people we follow probably the most. Although we spend a lot of time with all the characters. Uh, Paul Bettany is, is very, very good as Will Emerson. Um, you have 
Simon Baker as Jared Cohen, the ruthless Jared Cohen. Jeremy Irons as the, the big boss, John Tull. And I'll talk more about it, but Ben Badgley as Seth Bregman. If you've seen the show You, he's the main character in that. So, what is Margin Call? Well, it's sort of a dramatization of the beginning of the 2008 economic crisis. It's told from inside an investment firm in New York City. And it does touch on and, you know, it addresses the specifics of what's happening and what's causing what will be the mortgage crisis. But you don't need to know that part to get the story because ultimately it is a human story. It's a story of, you know, morality. It touches certainly on greed, life choices, uh, legacy, and just this idea of profits versus people. And it takes place over a course of a day. It runs overnight. It's something I talk about in another episode, you know, the way our lives work. We go to sleep, we wake up, and we wonder, has something changed? And in this case, yes, massive changes that will affect the world economy. And what goes into making those decisions? It really feels like a play. You know, it mostly takes place inside this office building. The characters do go out some, but ultimately everybody ends up back in the office for the vast majority of what plays out. And so you can see it working as a play. And it raises the question of, what would you do? You know, what would you do if you realized that something terrible had taken place? And your job was at risk, your company was at risk, but also the larger economy, the world economy was at risk. What would you do? Do you take responsibility? Do you hot potato, throw it to somebody else? And each character, you watch them go through those decisions. And it has to, you know, this, this sort of dehumanization of the people at the ground level, right? So one thing I love about this movie, these people are in an office building, high, you know, a high rise in New York City, and there's all these views looking down. And that's, you know, one of the themes of this movie, at least for me, you have these people and, you know, the skyscraper making decisions that affect the people on the ground. They affect people with homes. They affect everyone else. And they're, they're above, you know, almost like Mount, Mount Olympus, right? They're, they're looking down, making these decisions. And any time that, I don't, I don't know, I don't want to spoil it. I mean, they realize, you know, still watch it. If you know the story of the economic crisis, you know what happens. But they realize that essentially uh, they're, entire company is at risk of going under due to dangerous investments. And so what do they do about it? Anytime that a character brings up the implications for people below, you know, you, you or I with a home, there's a lot of rationalization. There's a lot of justification and it's, it's so well done because you could see, I mean, it's, this is, you know, the, I'm not saying this is exactly what happened, but you could see this being a realistic uh, enactment, a realistic, you know, these realistic scenarios, realistic reactions to what happened. There is much rationalization. There's much justification. There's then, again, this detachment. Ultimately, there's this, what can we do for 
you know, the greater good or the greater stability versus, well, what's the quick fix for us personally? And so you have some people saying we got to do the quick fix that protects us. You have other people raising objections, but ultimately those objections are silenced. And it's just really well done to see how this plays out for each person. And I want to, again, a special nod to uh, Penn Badgley as Seth Bregman. He's, he's sort of the, he's the youngest of this group and he is naive in many ways. He's ambitious and to watch him sort of lose his, not that there's necessarily an innocence because he just wants to make as much money as possible. And he is doing what he, what he dreams of doing. That's what he said. But you see this, um, his naivety, quote unquote, die through, you know, go away, um, fade away. Let's say that fade away as the movie plays itself out. And I like the one, one thing they do is, you know, they're in these rooms, these corporate offices. He ends up being not only is the youngest, but he, he doesn't have a tie. And it, so he sticks out, you know, as being younger and set apart from. You have uh, Kevin Spacey's character whose dog is dying. And so really heavy on the symbolism there because he's someone who, at least in some way, has taken pride in what he's doing and the relationships he's built and he sees it all crumbling around him. The dog is dying. So well done, highly recommended. And I and I and I've rewatched it, uh, and I recommend rewatching it because I think each time you sort of see a different aspect of it and focus on the different reactions and and it makes you think. And uh, very scary, also very scary, also that right now. There could be decisions made high in a skyscraper that could be devastating for you and put your well-being at risk. And you don't, you don't know it until it's already happened. So, there we go. Excellent movie, Margin Call, from 2011, written and directed by J.C. Chander. All right, it's almost time, almost time for the latest installment of the Party Down discussion. Before we do that, I'm going to do what I've done every show, which is give a little plug for a nonprofit, the Louisville Legal Aid Society. As I say every time, they have not asked me to make this plug. They have not uh, endorsed the show in any form or fashion. They don't, likely don't know, and or that they don't know that I'm doing this, but I want to say... The Louisville Legal Aid Society is a nonprofit uh, organization that I believe in. I think it's a very good cause. If you find yourself with some extra income or you find yourself in a giving mood, the spirit of charity is on you. I would ask you to please consider giving. Go to www.laslou.org or yourlegalaid.org. No E on the aid. Or go to yourlegalaid.org slash donate. If you go to LASLOU.org, I think it takes you, it all takes you to the same page and you can see there's a donate button up top. The Legal Aid Society provides uh, legal services for low income individuals in need, for the homeless, for veterans, for domestic violence victims. It's a great organization. Please consider giving the Louisville Legal Aid Society. Again, they have not asked me to do this. They don't know I'm doing this. So there you go. Okay. 
Are you ready? Are you excited? Here we go. Party down. All right. This is it. This is the fifth of five deep dives on the five main party down characters. If you recall, the first episode discussion is an overview of the show and of the characters and then a deep dive on Henry Pollard, and then a deep dive on Ron Donald, and then a deep dive on Casey Klein, and then a deep dive on Kyle Bradway. And now here we are, a deep dive on Roman D. Beers, played by Martin Starr. And again, we're talking about Party Down, the Stars Network program, aired 2009 to 2010. The show was created by... John Embaum, Rob Thomas, Dan Etheridge, and Paul Rudd. Most of the teleplays are credited to John Embaum. There are some credited to Rob Thomas as well. Spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. As always, we're going to talk about the whole show, all the show. So, spoilers. You've been warned. I still think you listen to this. You'll still enjoy the show or watch the whole show. And listen to this, whatever you want. As I always do, plug the show. If you subscribe to Stars, you can see it. If you subscribe to Hulu, you can see it. You can get digital copies on iTunes or Amazon. Or the cheapest way, buy the DVD. I recently looked because I bring it up every time. So I wanted to make sure it was still accurate, the things I was telling you. Last time I checked. for a DVD of the entire series. That's almost a crime. That's almost theft. Unbelievable. 20 episodes for $8.99 of one of the greatest programs in the history of Western civilization. It's baffling. It boggles the mind, folks. So there you go. Get it. Watch it. Spoilers. Here we go. Roman D. Beers. What is there to say about Roman? Well, first, let's just give all the credit to the writers, as we talked about. All the teleplays are by either John Embaum, which the majority are, or Rob Thomas, although I believe one teleplay is by Russell Smith. So anyway, the show creators, again, John Embaum, Rob Thomas, Dan Etheridge, and Paul Rudd. All the credit to the writers. I didn't make any of this stuff up. I just like to talk about it, and I want to pitch the show to you. You should watch it. Watch it, watch it, and think about it. Hmm. Okay. Martin Starr as Roman De Beers. Great performance. It's one of those performances where you can't imagine somebody else being Roman. He is Roman. So that speaks a lot about his talent, his skill, his craft. And if you really want to see how excellent he is as an actor, watch the movie Save the Date, which I obviously talk about with the... Lizzie Kaplan shared universe because in Save the Date, he's a totally different character. He is not Roman. And if you've seen the show, the show Silicon Valley, you know, he plays Guilfoyle. He's not Guilfoyle. You see, just a, just a nice guy. So you see the range there. Very skilled actor, Martin Starr. But let's talk about Roman. You know, uh, I was sort of dreading this one in that I thought, well, what, what are you going to say about someone who is such a jerk 
But when you really watch the show and focus, I mean, there's a lot there. There's a lot to discuss. And in fact, I, I find this, I think this is one of the most interesting discussions, if not the most interesting, because of this character and this, who he is, the things he says versus the, the objective reality of his life. So the world in his head versus the world that we see presented on screen. So Roman, look, the guy's a jerk. First and foremost, he is abrasive, he's rigid in his beliefs, uh, difficult to deal with, extremely close-minded. He's a writer, so he stands apart from the rest of the group. We have you know, actors, former actors, comedian, and Ron, aspiring businessman. And then there's Roman, the writer. And Roman, as the writer, of course, uh, He's the creator, right? He is the, he is, he views himself as being better than and apart from. If only the world understood how truly excellent he was, then everything would be okay. But of course, the world doesn't get pick up on that. All they see is this very strange, you know, jerk. <laughs> Roman, in his rigid beliefs, uh, says that he is a writer of hard sci-fi he's a fan of hard sci-fi which i think the show explains as being science fiction that is rooted in in some kind of real science or real scientific principle uh we get that we gleam that from a conversation that uh, roman has with george takei of star trek fame in season one episode 10 when roman corners him in the bathroom and asks him questions about star trek uh, we don't know much about his past. And so talking about Roman's origins, no family information is given that I can remember. And I want you to know for each one of these deep dives, I am rewatching the show each time, watching and paying attention to the different characters we're discussing, which I think is a great experience. If, if you want to pick up on things you haven't seen, watch an episode focusing specifically on a character a lot of times they're in the background doing things or just their reactions and i think you you pick up on the different aspects because in party down them being at parties there's a lot going on on the screen at any given time and of course we're drawn to the person who's speaking but there's a lot more happening so there you go we have no family information that i can recall we know he attended college we don't know what college we don't know what kind of degree he got or anything like that or what, you know, if he got any advanced degrees, all we know is he attended college. We know that from a line of dialogue uh, that is exchanged between Roman and Uta Banked, played by Kristen Bell in season one, episode 10. So we know he went to college. We don't know anything about his family. We know that he is an avid reader. Not only do we see him reading, for example, in season one, episode one, right away, we see him reading. That's how we kind of meet him. Season one, episode seven, at the Brandex corporate retreat, we see him reading. So he's an avid reader. He talks about how when you know people were playing sports, he was reading. He says that in season two, episode nine, Cold Andrew's draft day party, when he's talking to a pre-med student. And that's really all we know. We we don't know that he's ever been in any relationships. That's never discussed, and it kind of hard to imagine as kind of mean as he is that people would want to spend much time with him. But he has writing partners. We learn in season two, uh, season two, 
episode five. Of course, Steve Gutenberg's birthday. He has a writing partner, Kent Goebbels, who we see, who we learn uh, is real. And they work together in season two, episode eight. We learn that Joel Munt is his former writing partner. So, so he has some social qualities that he's able to form connections with people to have writing partners. We don't know that has he's ever had any other ones. There are at least two. We don't know of any friends, although I guess at one point, or these people are as close to friends as we're aware of. It's hard to imagine him in a relationship. It's hard to imagine being a friend. He's constantly on the attack. Roman is always, always on the attack. And so let's get into it. Let's talk about his traits, which we, of course, have talked some about. Abrasive, close-minded, unhappy, right? I mean, I think it's very, very apparent. And he is a interesting contrast to Henry. And I talked about that in the very first episode, just in the overview, Henry and Roman, two unhappy people. However, you know, whereas Henry internalizes unhappiness and he's open about it, he's at least respectful generally to other people. Roman is the opposite. Roman is miserable and spreads his misery. Attack, attack, attack. You, the, the community aspect of Party Down, which I find so engaging and, 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 and touching, is the tolerance they have for him. Because as difficult as he is, they're still there. They still, you know, humor him as much as they can. And you never get the sense that he would, he's ever in any danger of losing his job. Well, of course he's not because we need that character for the show to take place. Nevertheless, uh, he's as, as abrasive and as vile as he is at times there's still just this kind of touching patience that they have with him. And, and when I say vulgar, and not only in the things he says and his attempts at, you know, flirting or interactions with, with women are generally disgusting. He's also disgusting in that he, he just eats, you know, the food with his bare hands out of the shared, you know, trays. So <laughs> there's a lot of negative to say about him. But we're not only going to say negative. So there, there are the, something I will say probably five times in this is if, if the show only lasted one season, it would, it would just be about him as a vile person. Season two is so critical because he shows humanity. He shows some heart. He shows, at least in his way, some kindness, which makes this a more interesting character and a, a more interesting discussion. So there we go. He thinks he's better than everyone. You know, he thinks he views himself as more intelligent than everyone. Therefore, he is better than everyone. The supremacy of the writer. He has a worldview based on what he has read versus what he has experienced. I think we see that time and time again. Or what he has you know, watched or read versus what he has experienced. And, an, you know, example at the season one, episode five, the sensation awards after party. He says he's an aficionado of, you know, adult entertainment, but when it comes to actually dealing with human beings, he is gross, vile, clumsy, uh, inappropriate. Season two, episode three, an episode titled Nick DeSinto's Orgy Night. He declares himself to have knowledge of that type of gathering not based on experience, but apparently things he's read or watched. And so again, it's his world being in, you know, his experience being based on what he has learned secondhand versus things he has experienced in life. 
he does not seem to have much life experience. Creepy. Creepy in the way he deals with women. Season 1, episode 6, particularly creepy. He's flirting with a 16-year-old at a Sweet 16 party. Awful small talk. Often very, very inappropriate. Season 1, episode 5, at the awards party. Absolutely. Season 2, episode 1, Jackal Onassis uh, backstage party when he is dressed as Jackal Onassis. His attempts to flirt are gross. Here's the positive. There are limits to his attacks, and particularly when it comes to Kyle. So, as I talked about last week, and I was talking about the first week, Kyle and Roman form the third of the three key relationships in the show. One being Casey and Henry, one being Ron and Henry, and the third being Kyle and Roman. And it is a frenemies relationship, but it's that way because of Roman. Roman is verbally abusive to Kyle. Roman is physically abusive to Kyle. In turn, Kyle retaliates. However, in season two, we see that there are limits. In season two, episode two, the Precious Lights preschool auction, you know, he, he's on the attack with Kyle. Kyle appears to like he's starting to cry. Roman backs off of it. In season two, episode three, Kyle is legitimately shaken, discouraged, and Roman steps up. Now, it's clear to us he doesn't necessarily believe the things he's saying to Kyle, that Kyle's going to make it, but he still says it. And when it's needed, he says it. Also, season one, episode eight, there is a possible murder that's going to take place, and he cares. He cares. Now, ultimately, in the end, he does not step in when he sees that uh, the driver may be in danger, that Ricky Sargulish or Sargulesh might be plotting to, to kill this man. At the very end of the show, he watches him drive off and doesn't do anything. But he does care. He does try earlier in the episode to foil the murder plot, which he gets wrong. But anyway, so, you know, in season one, he does show that he cares for that a random person. So that that's interesting. Otherwise, though, no. Otherwise, attack, attack, attack. That is his mentality, which leads to one of the great parts about Roman on the show is the way he interacts with the guest stars. Some of the highlights of the show are Roman talking with the guest stars because whereas the group tolerates and has and has patience with him when outsiders deal with him they have no such thing you have ricky sargulish season one episode eight who puts roman in his place you have uh, uda banks season one episode 10 putting roman in his place you have leonard stiltskin played by jk simmons in season one episode six as well as season two episode two putting Roman in his place quick to quick to trade barbs with Roman and also Steve Gutenberg. Some of the best parts of that, that episode. Now that's, you know, critically acclaimed episode. I think a lot of people, it's their very favorite. I love the parts between Steve Gutenberg and Roman, especially watch Steve Gutenberg's reaction. Roman is being Roman. He's saying the kind of abrasive things he always says. And, and Steve's uh, reactions are priceless. You know, he just, He's tolerant, but he, he sees that this guy is foolish. 
you know, he sees the the foolishness of Roman and he rolls with it and he and he actually gets Roman to grow. Roman uses science as an excuse. You know, season one, episode two, he's talking to Henry how everything's random, so it's not really his fault that he that he failed. Season two, episode seven, after the, the team loses dodgeball, you know, he says, you know, there's no order to the universe. So that becomes a, a crutch. You know, nothing matters. Everything's random. And so I think, you know, in his mind, it, it justifies, one, it justifies his behavior. He can act like that because nothing matters anyway. Two, it explains why, you know, all these people that he, he believes are less than him uh, are successful and he's not. So it becomes a justification or rationalization. Arc, there really isn't, uh, again, there really is not much of an arc in season one. He's a jerk in the beginning. He's a jerk in the end. Season two, on the other hand, he's still a jerk throughout, but at times he's less of a jerk. And when he steps outside of himself, he grows. We see that uh, with Steve Gutenberg. He's vulnerable. He listens to Steve Gutenberg and, and learns to rewrite and the work. His writing improves. Season two, episode 10, a big breakthrough. He uh, inadvertently gets high. And, but what that does is, you know, he, he steps outside of himself. And I'm, I'm not advocating that, but in the show, he steps outside of himself and he ends up writing something that's quality, something that's good. He considers it his masterpiece, The Serpent in the Mirror. And we'll talk more about that. All right. The high points of the character. Well, season two, episode five, just what I said. He listens to Steve Gutenberg. He allows himself to be vulnerable and he learns the rewrite and his work improves. Season two, episode six. Well, that's a high point for him because at the theater group, uh, the community theater group says that writers are, you know, writers are gods and they venerate him. He is venerated at least by two of the actors. They get him drunk, they make out with him, and he is recognized for his brilliance, at least for an hour or so. So there you go. So that's a high point. He is venerated, the writer as God. Season two, episode eight. Now that's an interesting one. The whole party, Joel Munt's big deal party. It is a spurned former writing partner, someone he fired for being a quote unquote sellout and being, again, Roman being abrasive, Roman being rigid, Roman being a jerk. He fired this guy, Joel Munt, and now Joel Munt is successful. And so the party is premised on, you know, it's revenge against Roman. So that's a low. On the other hand, the party really is one of the great high points because Roman gets to meet uh, a writer that he looks up to, Roman's idea is is ultimately used, is going to be used in the in a movie that's going to be made, although he's not going to get credit for it. But thanks to Kyle, Roman realizes that there is hope that if those people can be successful, F. Gordon, Theodore, the writer, as well, and Joel Munt, then there is hope for Roman. So although that is a low point that, you know, the fact that it's a revenge party against him and his friend is successful, whereas he is not in the end, it becomes a high point because he has hope. Season two, episode 10 is a high point. Again, his masterpiece. He writes that we'll talk more about that. Season one, episode 10 is also a high point. The Stenheiser Pong wedding reception because he gets to meet his hero or one of his heroes, George Decay. On the other hand, low points. Well, 
I guess season one, episode three, Peppa McMaster's single seminar has to be a low point because he gets humiliated in retaliation for Roman tricking Kyle into shaving an eyebrow. Kyle gets Roman to inadvertently take some erectile dysfunction medicine, which ends up being a very humiliating situation for him with Casey. We learn that he has a crush on Casey. Of course, it's a very much a one-way situation because Roman is Roman. Uh, we have season one, episode five is a low point because he sticks to his rigidity and he had an opportunity with a, an adult film actress and he couldn't stop with the closed-minded hard sci-fi stuff. So he's rejected in that situation as well. He's rejected throughout the entire episode. That's a low point for him. Season one, episode six, I think that's a low point for, in terms of you know, what we see. I think that's just a gross point. He's hitting on a 16-year-old. He's eating directly out of the, in the catered food. So, I mean, that's a low point for us as the viewers. You can just see him as a creep. Oh, and he's also f physically abusive to Kyle. So that's a low point. I don't know that he, I don't know that the character experiences that as a low point, but I think as we, the viewer, in my opinion, it's a low point for us viewing the character. And season one, episode seven. So see, he has a rough time. Not, he's a jerk in season one, but he also has a rough time. I mean, he, he gets he gets some comeuppance. In season one, episode seven, the Brandix corporate retreat, creepy stalking of Casey, and he ends up getting blasted in the face by her with a you know a dodgeball straight to the face. So that's got to be a low point. He's in a lot of physical pain. My favorite moment. Hmm. That's really tough because as much as I've said Roman's a jerk, he has some great dialogue, particularly when he is attacking or, or, or making light of or cutting down the homeowners or the situation. Like he, when he's making anti-corporate comments, it's always very funny. His, Rick, his, his, his anti-athlete comments are funny. But I have to think season one, episode eight, his interactions with Ricky Sargulish or Sargolesh are, I think, are my favorite moments. He has been identified as a writer. Ricky has written a script. It's a terrible script. It's poorly written and possibly a, a murder confession. And Roman is his, you know, is, is arrogant, his uh, abrasive self, and, and Ricky just puts him right in his place, intimidates him and gets him to do what he wants. And so the moment when Ricky is putting him on the spot and making him critique the 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 script and Roman of course is forcing himself to say positive things. I I that I think that's my favorite Roman moment. Underrated Roman moment would be all the interactions with Uta Banked. All the interactions every time he speaks to her and they have a back and forth, very very funny. So, let's go through it. Let's go through the seasons. Let's go through all the episodes. Now, we're not going to talk about every single plot point, but, but just sort of the major overarching themes and the moments that inform the character and the character's trajectory or something like that. Okay, let's talk about season one. Okay, season one. Episode 1, Willow Canyon, Homeowner's Annual Party. 
our introduction to Roman. He is reading Return to Gore, which we see, by the way, the driver reading in uh, season one, episode four, The Investor's Dinner. The dude who played uh, Mr. Lippman on Seinfeld, his, uh, his driver is reading that same, that same book when they're in the back room and uh, Constance is mooing. Anyway, I digress. He's reading Return to Gorm. Our introduction to him, he's a writer. He quotes Repo Man. He's very proud of himself for quoting Repo Man to uh, Henry for more discussion of Party Down and Repo Man. Listen to the first episode of this discussion. I, I went more into that, so I'm not going to repeat that. We see right away the Roman jealousy of Kyle. Roman is trying to attract the attention of the homeowner's daughter. Kyle steps in. She is understandably more attracted to Kyle. And again, there's a moment that around 1454 of the episode where you see, I think it's a camcorder footage, you see Roman see that Kyle is flirting with the homeowner's daughter. He immediately, immediately attacks. What does he do? He pretends to be a movie producer. He tricks Kyle into shaving his eyebrow. That ends up, as we learn in the next episode, it costs Kyle a, a role in the Palisades. So we meet this character and we see right away he's very petty, right? Just because the homeowner's daughter is more attracted to Kyle than him, he ends up costing Kyle a job. He's on the attack. That's who he is. He's an angry person. He's a frustrated person. And he's a petty person. That's, the, that's who we're meeting, right? He's the frustrated writer. If only the world understood how great he was, then everything would be okay. But they don't. And so, you know, he is, uh, he's, to he's, he's, he's tortured, right? Poor, poor him. And, you know, that's one of three instances we also see in season one, episode five, and then in season two, episode one, of just instances of women being attracted to Kyle instead of Roman, to Roman's chagrin. We, the viewer, understand it. One is a jerk, one is not. One is Kyle Bradway, one is not. But anyway, so that's our introduction, just a... a retaliatory, petty person who views himself as being better than. Great comments, very funny interaction with Henry where he's dissing the homeowners, dissing the house. This is an objectively, you know, beautiful, large house. And he's, he's, he's minimizing and, 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 you know, discrediting it. Funny stuff though, about any of his anti-corporate comments are very, very funny. So that's Roman. That's who we're meeting, which leads to Season 1, Episode 2, The California College Conservative Union Caucus. We do get a deeper insight to Roman in this episode. He has a very interesting com conversation, a noteworthy conversation with Henry. You know, they, as I said before, this, this theory, this belief that everything is random, so therefore it doesn't matter. And, and he, means, he means well. He's trying to cheer Henry up, of course, it, it's, that doesn't work. That's not, there's nothing heartening about that thought. Yet at the same time, he's also talking about how when he gets huge, the things he's going to have, when he's famous and when he's rich, the things that he's going to have. So even though he considers himself 
you know, this hard science, you know, he's in the hard sci-fi, he's, he's a realist, all these things. He's also a dreamer. So we see this juxtaposition with him. He's telling Henry everything's random, but yet he's convinced he's going to make it and be rich. So there is that contradiction in Roman. And he has no insight into himself. He can't see that contradiction. And because of that, he lashes out. He just does not, he doesn't understand himself. He doesn't understand the world. He lashes out. He, he has a, a script handy for Terror Bird. Uh, and he's saying, you know, Jurassic Park was huge. So he wrote this script about a phorasphacid, I believe it is, <laughs> a terrifying bird. And his big plan is to s slip it into the briefcase that's being given to then Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. More food eating, more disgusting, e eating the food of the, um, the guests that they're catering for. He gets barbecue sauce on the American flag. All very funny stuff. But again, this is, this is a really important episode to see the contradiction in these hard sci-fi and this detached you know, realism versus who he really is, which is this dreamer who believes that he's going to be huge. You know, So there we go. Now, season one, episode three. This is when we we really learn the depth of his creepy crush on Casey. There's a really vulgar description or just a really un unsettling conversation he has with uh, Henry, a, a person he barely knows. And he's giving this graphic description of, of Casey's body. Inappropriate conversation, inappropriate small talk, but he can't see that. He also doesn't pick up on social cues. You know, Casey's upset trying to, get him to go away and he doesn't and he hangs he hangs around her he is the one to pick up though he sees that the, she's going to get divorced and he's correct about that it's a humiliating episode for him because kyle gets his revenge season one episode three peppa mcmaster single seminar kyle gets his revenge and that is kyle slips him some erectile dysfunction medicine he embraces casey and is humiliated so the Kyle-Roman relationship, they're frenemies, mostly enemies, but it's, it's, it's Roman. Kyle does these things in retaliation. Roman cost him a job. Kyle got him back. Next up, Season 1, Episode 4, The Investor's Dinner. This is a great example of his rigidity and his close-mindedness. There's a whole kind of running subplot of a prop gun from the show Beretta. He's absolutely convinced that he's correct in this argument about the show being named Beretta and the character being named Beretta. In the end, he's wrong and he can't believe it. But it's that example. He, he, he can't conceive of the fact that he would be wrong in the argument. And he goes on and on attacking. We also learn that you know, he, he views himself as a writer. He's not a waiter. He's just doing this because he has to pay bills. He's a writer. And he gets called out for that. But that, but that's the group. It's, it's a funny conversation between Constance, Kyle, and Roman. Are they, are they actors, writers, or are they waiters? Of course, Henry ends up being the butt of it. Henry being he, the bartender because he's quit acting. So more creepy stuff. Him looking up people's skirts. And more jerk stuff. When poor Ron ends up uh, urinating on himself. Roman is the one to take out a camera phone and take a picture of it. 
we see again that closed-mindedness, that rigidity. And guess what? He was wrong, which he couldn't conceive of. Season 1, Episode 5, as I mentioned before, that is the Sensation Awards after party. This is a tough one for him because, first of all, he declares himself to Henry as this adult film aficionado. He's uh, an enthusiast, let's say. But this disconnect between things he watches and reads versus real life experience. Kyle is able to you know, hit it off or flirt with um, attendees or ward winners at this party. And Roman just ruins it every single time with his disgusting comments and his deliveries and just who he is. The one person whose nickname is or her name her name is Lisa, aka Cramsey. She says that she likes sci-fi and this is gonna be his big moment. But then she mentions dragons and his rigidity and his closed mindedness kicks in. He has to correct her. He has to point out that that is not sci-fi and that ends it. She walks away. So it's a low point for him in that he's this enthusiast, this aficionado. He chases everyone away. He has one opportunity, but he can't help himself. That closed-mindedness, that rigidity kicks in and he ruins his shot with Lisa. So there you go. Season one, episode six, as I mentioned, Taylor Stiltskin, Sweet 16. To me, this is the high point of unlikability. He's physically abusive to, to Kyle. Kyle's had his teeth bleached, so he just keeps flicking him, keeps hurting him. And super creepy. He's hitting on uh, he's hitting on Taylor's friend. It's a Sweet 16 party, so we believe she also is 16. Disgusting eating, at, eating food directly out of the tray. We also learned... Oh, I might have, I forgot this in his backstory. He has a blog. We, he tells uh, Stiltskin, the producer, that he has a quote-unquote prestigious blog. And uh, just more just, just more of his awkwardness. We, we know that he likes Casey, so he, and he thinks that he's being, you know, jokey with her, and he, like, hits her in the arm. All right, season one, episode seven, The Brand X Corporate Retreat. And this is where his crush of Casey comes to a head, all right? First of all, this episode starts with everybody making fun of him regarding his uh, fandom of the movie 300, Zack Snyder's 300. But you have this this whole plot of um, Casey flirting with Rick Fox and just how enraged and jealous he gets, Roman gets, and Henry as well. We've talked about that, but how... How, how jealous he gets of Casey. Someone who has never let on that we've seen that she has any interest in him. But, in, you know, he can't see that, right? He, he, he believes he's going to have this opportunity with Casey now that she's divorced. He believes that. Nobody else, the viewer certainly doesn't believe that. So he, he has creepy searching for her uh, where he puts his, a glass up to a, a, a door at a hotel room. And ultimately... In one of the weirder moments in the show, Henry catches him uh, watching, you know, on a gentleman who is, the gentleman himself is watching an adult film. Very bizarre and weird Roman behavior. He gets his comeuppance, though. He, you know, he calls out Casey in a really creepy way in this public setting about uh, her and Rick Fox. She gets him back with a dodgeball straight to the head, right in the glasses. What comes out here that his, 
his bitter resentment against Rick Fox, Rick Fox just being stand-in for all athletes. Uh, they are funny lines, though. That's the whole thing about it. He's a creep. He says all these things, but he has very, very funny lines. Sometimes he's just a straight jerk. All right. Season 1, Episode 8. Celebrate Ricky Sargulish. Or is it Sargulish? Either way. The continued fallout, so he's still mad when he realizes, you know, when he found out that Henry is in fact in some kind of relationship with, with Casey. And this is the episode where, as I mentioned before, I talked about, you know, he gets put in his place. Kyle says that uh, Roman is a writer. Ricky then corners him, intimidates Roman into uh, reading the script, even though he doesn't want to, and intimidates him into giving notes. Roman figures out there's this potential, you know, murder confession. He tries to help this one guy. It's the wrong guy. But just to see him squirm, to see him put on the spot, to see him have to say things he doesn't believe about the, the script, you know, compliment the script when he doesn't believe it. Uh, it's very, very funny. Some of the best Roman material in the whole show. You know, he cares that about the trying to prevent the other murder, to a point. To a point. And when I say to a point, when he figures out who the real potential victim, you know, future victim is going to be, he just watches them drive off. He says no, but he just watches them drive off. He doesn't do anything to intervene. I'm likely at a concern for his well-being, and we can understand that. But anyway, he shows some level of care in this, in this episode. He shows some level of care. He does not want another murder to be committed. Let's move on. Season 1, Episode 9, James Rolfe High School, 20th Reunion. Not a lot here for Roman. This is, you know, heavy focus on, of course, Ron Donald. It's his high school reunion. And then the second, you know, plot of Will Henry leave and, and, and all that. Funny interactions with Bobby Sinclair, played by Jennifer Coolidge, who is replacing Constance in, in, season, in the next two episodes, season one, episode nine, and season one, episode ten. They have some, some great interactions. Um... But this is an episode where we see some signs of peace between Roman and Kyle. They're not fighting. I mean, they're, you know, it's arguing, but it's about movie, you know, movie characters or something. So you see some peace between them. You see him get along somewhat. And so you, this is the friend part of Frenemy. And it, it really sows the seeds for season two. Now, season one, episode 10, on the other hand, that's a high point. The Stenheiser Pong wedding reception. He gets to meet George Takei. Now, he, of course, in creepy Roman fashion, he follows George Takei into the bathroom and kind of corners him and pesters him with uh, Star Trek questions. He gets to spend more time after George Takei has had an allergic reaction and he tries to pitch him, a, a, you know, his movie script or what have you, but he does get to meet him. On the other hand, you have the absolute pettiness of Roman, Uta Bank picks Roman to stand by a sign directing guests to the bathroom and Roman goes out of his way he flips the sign and although he 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 does some clever wordplay to get this guest to go in the wrong direction he never says to the guest which way the bathroom is he says you know to follow the sign which of course he has flipped the other way around so just pettiness this, the, the guest didn't do anything. He's mad at Uda for putting him there by the sign, but he takes it out on the guest, who is now going in the wrong direction. I also want to say that I was able to see some of the 
the Bentway motivational cards. This is off topic for Roman, but um, Ron has the Bentway motivational cards. And one of them says, the surest way not to fail is to decide to succeed. That's one of them. Okay, well, let's move on. Season two. All right, well, the good news is we get to talk about some different aspects of Roman's personality and some growth. Season two, episode one, on the other hand, um, well, there's not much growth here. This is the Jackal Onassis backstage party. In this, Jackal Onassis, played by Jimmy Simpson, um, wants to be a regular guy, so he makes a deal with Roman and he switches out. He wears the party down outfit. Roman dresses as Jackal Onassis, who is a Marilyn Manson type, you know, goth glam rock individual. And so Roman puts on the outfit of Jackal Onassis. To the to the party goers, he's Jackal Onassis. However, even being Jackal Onassis, he still repulses females. He still is bested by Kyle. You know, this is another example I've talked about earlier. Kyle comes along and the women are attracted to Kyle more than this famous rock star. Of course, we know it's it's not really Jackal Nass. It's, it's Roman. Ro- Kyle says he doesn't have an aura, and that's right. What I'm getting at is this. This is an, a great example of, no, it's not, it's not me, it's you. No, it's you, Roman. You are the problem. You can be dressed up as Jackal Nassus. You can have all that fame attributed to you, all that wealth, and you still are repulsing people. This is a tough episode for Roman because it, it definitively shows it's him. More awkward small talk, right? He's trying to flirt with these women or pick up women talking about Nietzsche. And he is, in his mind at least, the Zarathustra character, right? He comes down from the mountain and he's got, you know, Roman has all the answers and he's going to preach to us all. If only we'd listen to him, we would learn the way. Okay, season two, episode two, Precious Lights Preschool Auction. In this episode, uh, it's got to be a low point from Roman's perspective in that he is bested by Kyle. We learn that Kyle is going to audition for a, a, a mo- the movie version of a novel called Snow Crash, which... Roman is a very big fan of. Roman refuses to help because he doesn't want Kyle to get that role. However, Roman realizes that there's an X-Men comic at the auction, which is worth much more than it's being auctioned for or valued at. He tries to get the money from Kyle, but Kyle's understandably not going to do that since Roman is such a jerk. Roman's response is to retaliate and attack devastating attacks on Kyle about uh, his talent and his prospects. And Kyle appears to start crying. However, he has fooled Roman. Kyle appears to start crying and Roman shows some signs of humanity and he stops. He says, I, you know, I've gone too far and I'll stop. At which point Kyle says, nope, I was just faking. I wasn't really upset. I got you. Was he really totally faking? I don't know. Maybe somewhat, but uh, it was a jerk move by Roman, and but we did see some humanity. He realized he went too far and he stopped. Kyle then threw it in his face. Kyle said, "I'm acting." And by the way, he gets bested by Kyle. Kyle buys the comic. Kyle makes the profit. 
tough episode for Henry. Everybody's making Hen- Henry's life more difficult, including Roman. Roman goes behind the uh, the school fundraising leader or the, the, the school headmistress, I'm not sure what her role is, who is complaining to Henry and he makes some vulgar gestures behind her. So everybody's making Henry's life more difficult, including Roman. Okay, season two, episode three, for people who who want to like Roman, for people who want to see the best in Roman, this is the high point. Nick DeSinto's Orgy Night is the title of the episode. This is the episode where he shows some true humanity, some true kindness. This is the episode where, in the beginning, he's attacking Kyle. He's making fun of Kyle because the movie Jumping Boys is going to be a DVD release. However... When Kyle is legitimately hurt based on his conversation uh, with the actress who has got Kyle to question his ability to succeed, to make it, he turns to Roman and Roman helps him. Not that Roman believes what he's saying when he tells Kyle that he'll make it, but he says the words, that's what's needed. He shows some humanity. He shows some heart. So... For, for all of the people who want to like Roman, this is something to hang your hat on because he, he he's not this one-dimensional creep. He does care. And so, uh, really important episode. The other thing is, as I said, you know, the, the, the homeowner is not having success in pulling the party off. He turns to Roman for Roman's knowledge, uh, you know, eyes wide shut and all that kind of stuff. And Roman has ideas based on things he's watched and read. But this is the episode where everyone's miserable. And that includes Roman because Roman, although he tries to help the homeowner and in some ways does to pull off this party, Roman is excluded. Roman time, tries multiple times to be you know, allowed to participate in this party. He is rejected. So Roman, once again, ends up as an outsider, outside the party, even though he's the expert, quote unquote. So season two, episode four. James Ellison, Funeral. This is another episode where we see Roman's lack of tact, right? He makes these comments about a dead body just being, you know, an inanimate object. Social disconnect there. A horrible thing to say at a funeral. He also makes these comments um, um, that he thinks are enlightened in terms of race relations. And they're ignorant and, and, and ill-informed. And that's the truth. In his mind, he's this enlightened person, but to the rest of us, no, he's a jerk. And he gets called out on it. He's adamant that the truth should come out about the um, the deceased having the son who was there at the funeral that the widow doesn't know about. And, you know, he's adamant that the truth should come out and Casey puts him in his place. We learn that he had a, a script Overlords of Gran, a, a, a story about intelligent spores. We learn that Casey humored him and, and told him that it was okay. We learn that that was, of course, a lie, that it was terrible. And it gets thrown in his face that it was terrible and she was just being nice. And so Roman gets some comeuppance here. He doesn't understand tact. He doesn't understand respect and, and appreciating the moment and reading the room, as it were. And because of that, he has to learn a hard lesson, which is, do you really want to hear the truth if it's an extremely painful thing, such as 
the fact that you wrote something which is terrible. All right, here we go. Season 2, Episode 5, Steve Gutenberg's Birthday. And this is a high point for Roman. Again, if you want to like the character and you, you, you want to see the humanity, this is another good episode, very good episode in that you see the vulnerability. Roman, who is so adamant, you know, how smart he is and how tough he is and he's right and everyone's wrong. Steve calls him out. Roman is there with his writing partner, Kent Goebbels. They've had a script submitted to a producer or someone in the business who has rejected the script and said it's not good, says it lacks humanity. And so Steve tries to help by having the people there, the team, the crew, perform the work. And Steve encourages Roman and Kent to rewrite. And this is a revelation because, you know, again, Roman, my way is right, everyone else is wrong. In spite of his many objections and his, his knee-jerk reaction that everything's a sellout, that this is what hacks do, he does in fact rewrite and it comes out much better and he learns and he grows. So a big, big breakthrough in this and a lesson, right? When he opens his mind and tries something different, he grows. When he shows that vulnerability, takes the chance, he grows. Now, this is for, for all you eagle-eyed people. What is the name of the script? What I see on the screen when I pause it is cyber blank. I don't know what the second word is for the new millennium. What do you see? Again, I paused it. It looks like cyber blank. I don't know what that word is. The new millennium. Cyber blank the new millennium. Maybe it's four. I don't know. I can't totally read it. I'm curious to know if you know what it is. Let me know if you do. Please and thank you on that. Even in saying he he grows, he still has his moments, right? He still he still makes life hard for old Kent Goebbels, who's trying to flirt with um, Colette. Watch his scenes with Steve Gutenberg and Steve Gutenberg's reaction to Roman being Roman and and how he just kind of dryly takes it in and then responds back and kind of puts them in their place. So, excellent stuff. All right, season two, episode six, another high point, not on your wife, opening night is the episode. And in this, we have Roman venerated, right? He starts off in his typical way, which is attack, make fun of, he's, he's denigrating the community theater. But then, all of a sudden, he talks with the players and tells him he's a writer. They talk about a writer as God in, in the theater, and we're off and running. He drinks wine with them, and uh, they make out with him, and what Dionysian reveries take place in the middle of this cast party. He's got his uh, pan crown, his leaf crown going on. This is a high point for him. It's a secondary plot, but for Roman... This is, this is big time. People are actually embracing him. People are, are touching him. They're not repulsed. They're speaking with him and they appreciate him. Next, season two, episode seven, The Party Down Company Picnic. We learn that he has a competitive aspect to him. It matters to him when Valhalla Catering has an attitude that they're better than Party Down. Even though 
He professes to not really care about the job. He cares that much. It matters to him to be better than Valhalla. It matters to him to compete against them. He tries to be nice in his way with Lydia and supportive in his way, giving her quote unquote advice about the, the ruthlessness of Hollywood. And the, but we get his disconnect, right? He says he's too nice when of course we haven't seen that. We've seen the exact opposite. We, the viewer through now, what at that point, 17 episodes. So he tries, I guess I mean, you can give him that credit if you want. He gets along with Kyle in his way. I mean, they're, they're nice to each other, but he still can't help himself. He still makes offensive comments. He still still attacks. We get the, the comment about the universe having no order and all that when they lose. And it couldn't just be that he's not talented athletically. It couldn't just be he's uncoordinated. It couldn't just be the other team practices more or works harder. It's got to be that there's no order to the universe, right? We see he has a competitive nature, but we still see that disconnect. Also, he has a Velcro wallet. He's a grown man with a Velcro wallet that has $5 in it. All right. Next. Season 2, Episode 8. Here we go. Joel Munt's Big Deal Party. He really is a focus in this episode because who is Joel Munt? Well, it's his former writing partner who was fired by Roman. I don't know those dynamics or understand them. How did they meet? How did they divvy up the writing? I don't know. And what gave Roman the authority to fire him? Who knows? But go with it because the reason for this party is revenge. Joel Munt has signed a $1.5 million deal to make Axiomalium by A.F. Gordon Theodore into a movie. And of course, A.F. Gordon Theodore is a sci-fi writing hero of Roman, and he's there. So Roman gets to meet one of his sci-fi writing heroes. That's a good thing. The bad thing, of course, is this whole party is Joel trying to humiliate Roman. He wants Roman to serve him champagne. Now there's much attempts to get Joel to drink urine that that never materializes. So, so Roman tries a different thing to to break. He tries a more uh, sinister way. He calls it Iago style, like from Othello, to drive a wedge, a, a discord, so discord between AF Gordon Theodore and Joel Munt. It works, but in the end, he ends up helping Joel Munt. He comes up with an idea to take this kind of abstract concept from the sci-fi novel into something in a in you know visual form and that ends up saving Joel Munt's relationship with AF Gordon Theodore that in turn we learn saves his career so that would be bad for Roman the whole party is about revenge his idea ends up you know saving his enemy as it were it's saving his career opportunity here in making Axamalium into a movie. Compare that to Roman, who is still working at Party Down. So all those would be the make this the lowest point. However, it's not, because he does get to meet his hero, AF Gordon Theodore, although he's not going to get the credit. We learn he has sci-fi talent, right? His idea is quality enough that this distinguished sci-fi writer agrees with it, calls it a you know good idea. 
Um, so that's a positive, although he's not going to get the credit. But the key point here, Kyle pays it back. Whereas Roman helped Kyle when Kyle was in his lowest moment in Season 2, Episode 3. Kyle helps Roman here. Roman is in a low point. He says, you know, he talks about going to hang himself. And Kyle says, no, don't you see? This is hope. There is hope. If those guys can make it, then you can too. You see that moment of, of realization and understanding. So that's a high point. Huge credit to Kyle there. And a, and a negative turns into a positive. A low point becomes a high point. There we go. Party down. It's such a brilliant show. Not just the humor, not just the, you know, existential meditation, but that community aspect. People helping each other in their own way. All right, season one, episode nine. We're getting towards the end. Two episodes left as of now, as of me recording this. Cole Landry's draft day party. This is a throwback to season one, episode seven, in that the show starts off with the group kind of poking fun at Roman, talking about him being picked on in school. And what you have is that throwback, because that, you know, he gets picked on by the by the team, by the party down crew at the beginning of season one, episode seven, Brandex corporate retreat. But it also repeats the beat of his resentment against professional athletes because season one, episode seven, he, you know, he talks about his resentments against Rick Fox. Here you have Cole Landry, who is an accomplished college quarterback who's getting drafted into the NFL, and more of his anti-athlete philosophies are expounded in this episode. We also get another example of his disconnect, this world in his head versus objective reality. There's a an athlete there, college player at the party, one of Cole's friends, who helps Roman open up like a jar of mayo. And Roman assumes he's dumb. He's not. He's a pre-med student, which blows his mind. And not only is he a pre-med student, this guy is uh, very well read in terms of sci-fi and fiction. And it just blows Roman away. Roman, the, the legend in his mind, meets ob- objective reality and slaps him in the face once again. He gets schooled. Very good stuff. Okay. Next, here we are. This is it. This is the last episode to talk about for now. Again, they might make new episodes. There's article about that. We'll see. Right here, right now, me recording. This is the last one. Season 2, episode 10, Constance Carmel's Wedding. This is a big one for Roman. This is a big, big moment for Roman. As I said, he accidentally gets high. He eats uh, with brownies or cookies or something. And he ends up getting taken away in an ambulance. But before that happens, he has this breakthrough. Great, great scene. There's a bathroom scene. It starts at 1847. And he's in the bathroom. And we get the purple tube of consciousness beat, which we heard at the end of season one. Only was Bobby St. Brown saying it. Well, in this episode, you have uh, one of Constance's friends the one who brought the brownies or the cookies, and he's helping guide Roman through this this high that he's having, this sort of disorientation, this crisis, this spiritual crisis he's having. And he gets Roman to literally confront himself, to look himself in the mirror, 
He has to confront himself. He has to consume himself. You know, has to, in other words, he has to go beyond himself. And in doing so, he has a vision and he has a, he has an idea. And this gentleman writes down the idea on a roll of toilet paper. And it's his masterpiece called The Serpent in the Mirror. And so in some level, he has had a moment of some self-awareness of who he is and seeing himself and going beyond himself. You know, his, his sci-fi informs his worldview. For example, there's a, and I didn't even mention it, season two, episode six, he's talking about the story he wrote in which the world's overrun by machines and there's one last living person, but to survive, they have to not act like they're human. And so you can just see him talking about himself. You know, he stands alone. Everyone else is wrong and he can't be who he really is because the world doesn't understand and it's dangerous to be who he is. Same thing here. And there's some level of understanding that he's the serpent. He consumes himself. And it's this story about attacking a civilization, but it's themselves that they're attacking. So we see that there's some level of consciousness in which he sees that he is a self-destructive self-defeating person. However, when we last see him, Kyle has saved the day. Kyle has uh, saved the toilet paper roll, so he's able to give it to Roman. But Roman has no recollection of it. So did he learn any lesson that he'll be able to carry forward? Well, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we'll find out if they have new episodes. It's unlikely based on what we've seen throughout because of his stubbornness and his overall jerkness. So... There we go. I say all that, and I said the word jerk 27 times, maybe 35, I don't know. But, I mean, that's the character. Uh, but these are, you know, these, these are fictional characters. It's that balance. We have all these different personalities, and you can't have all the same people. So we have these... The different ingredients creating this perfect meal or something. Anyway. All right, let's wrap it up. There is an arc, right? There, and let me tie this together. Arc and lesson. Well, first of all, the lesson, I think, number one is don't be Roman, right? Don't be a jerk. Don't be that guy. But number two, you know, and this ties with the arc, be open-minded. When he goes outside of himself, of his rigid rules, you know, he has his breakthrough, season two, episode five, allows himself to be vulnerable, he has an open mind, he rewrites, and his work improves. Season 2, episode 10, when he confronts himself, he has this breakthrough. So there we go. Be open-minded. Don't get caught in rigidity, which is so self-destructive in Roman's case, right? Okay. Final note. One incredible, incredible, incredible writing, incredible stories, incredible acting. For all the things I've said about Roman and his abrasiveness, it is so well done. So thank you. Watch Stars Party Down. Buy it. Watch it over and over again. Martin Starr, well done. Show creators, John Embaum, Dan Etheridge, Rob Thomas, and Paul Rudd, well done. That's it. That's it. We've done it. Deep dives on all five main cast members. Can you believe it? Can this be real? Yes, it has happened. Don't crack up, folks. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your attention. 
We're going to come back again next month and we're going to do it again. What are we going to do next month? More listening, more watching, and Constance Carmel, played by the incomparable Jane Lynch. But that's next time. Anyway, be well. Don't crack up. Take care. Bye. Don't crack up. Don't crack up.